electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans. Here's the good news. Yields are dropping. And here's the bad news. Yields are dropping. If they drop too much, it could pose a whole new set of problems for the Fed and the markets. We'll look at why and how you want to be positioned now. Plus, do lower rates mean better prospects for housing? Our analyst says yes, even with recession risks growing. He's here to explain. And despite rising concerns about defaults in the private credit space, that market also keeps growing. We'll talk to one of the big lenders about rates, returns, and also recession risk there. But first, let's get today's numbers after a very hot week for stocks, Dom Chu. Best of the year so far, Kelly. That's how hot it was last week. But we're starting to maybe show signs of cooling off just a little bit. It was a decently, at least solidly positive day early on. But we've lost some momentum in this midday action. You can see right now, still green across the screen, but just about flat on the session. The Dow Industrials just about flat up 14 points, 34,075. The S&P 500, 43.59 the last trade error, just up about one or two points flat on the session. And a one-tenth of one percent gain for the Nasdaq Composite, 13. Now, just to give you some reference here, at the highs of the session, we were up roughly 14 points in the S&P and down three at the lows. So, again, tilting towards the lower end of that intraday drainage. And by the way, uh, viewers and listeners out there, each of these three major indices is working on at least six-day winning streaks. And each of those three indices for now above their both 50 and 200-day longer-term, medium-term trading averages over the time of the, the last couple of weeks here. So we'll see if that sticks around. Now, If you look at that rate story that Kelly just mentioned, yes, we are pulling back, but now just rising ever so slightly. The 10-year benchmark note, just a hair below 4.65%. Now, remember, we kind of got to about 5.02% there, got below 4.5% at one point. So this is an interesting area to see whether or not there do become sellers of Treasury bonds and notes into this kind of strength. We'll see if that plays out a little bit more in the coming days and weeks. And then, One stock to keep a close eye on, Dish Network, now falling to the worst level since December of 1998. Those shares down about 25%, a surprise loss for the quarter on slightly worse than expected revenues, driven in part by a loss in both wireless phone subscribers at its Boost mobile unit, as well as pay TV subscribers as well. So keep an eye on Dish Network, down 25%. Kelly, I'll send things back over to you. What a drama that has been. Dom, thank you very much, Dom Chu. Today is only the third full trading day, believe it or not, since the Fed kept rates steady and Chair Powell suggested they might be done hiking. And we've already seen a massive drop in bond yields. How much lower could they go? Steve Leisman is following that story for us. Steve? Kelly, yeah, three factors that drove the 10-year yield higher and helped stocks to rise, or actually drove yields lower, I'm sorry, and helped stocks to rise. All improved last week, but they haven't completely gone away, and they presented new uncertainties for the market. Growth was one thing. We got weaker jobs report and weaker ISMs last week. That helped the 10-year more dovish outlook uh, from the Fed and, of course, Treasuries. Less supply on the long end, at least 
short term here. You can see the impact of all that on the 10-year last week, taking a first leg down Wednesday morning with the Treasury refunding announcement, another leg after the Fed meeting, and yet a third move after the weaker-than-expected jobs report on Friday. But in a sign that things are still volatile out there and concerns remain, yields are up just a bit today, you can see there. The result of all this, though, was to move the December outlook for Fed hikes to just 7% for December, 12% for January, meaning the market is now betting pretty confidently that the Fed is done with its hiking. Those three areas now create new uncertainties for the market to navigate. Here's some of them now. On growth, how weak do we go? Is recession back on the table? On the Fed, Diane Swank talking about this last week on Friday on this show. Could the yield decline mean eventually more hikes if inflation doesn't get under control? And the Treasury, well, you can bet there's more long-end supply coming. So the market's going to have to digest that, digest that eventually. Now, former IMF chief economist Olivier Blanchard, now at the Peterson Institute, just out with a piece warning advanced economies to get their finances under control. He says he fears a debt explosion, Kelly, if they do not. We'll get to talk about this tomorrow with Austin Goolsby. He's the Chicago Fed president. He'll be exclusively on Squawk at 8 a.m. Kelly? That's interesting what you said, though, about Blanchard, Steve, because there were many hopeful that, uh, you know, we could take the deficit risk off the table with yields dropping now. And it sounds like that we, we haven't quite sorted that out yet. No. Uh, and remember, Blanchard was the one who said that governments could really borrow as long as their growth rate was above their interest rate. Well, that's not quite really ha uh, happened now that you have these higher yields out there. He says he believes that eventually they may come down a bit from where they are right now, but he kind of takes the market at their word. I just want to show you what he said here about the dysfunction in the U.S. government and how that makes him even more concerned. Uh, he says that given the current budget process dysfunction, one must worry that the adjustment will not take place anytime soon. Thus, the debt ratio is likely to increase for quite some time. We have to hope that it will not eventually explode. Yeah, pretty sober warning. Uh, Steve, stay with us. Let's turn now to our next discussion. As one of my next guests says, the Fed's tightening cycle is over, but if yields will no longer be doing the Fed's job, could more hikes still be on the table? Let's bring in Julia Coronado, Macro Policy Perspectives founder, and Peter Bookvar, CIO of Bleakley Financial Group and a CNBC contributor. Welcome to both of you. Uh, Peter, I'll just let you start. And yeah, so it, it, it's sort of a darned if we do, darned if we don't on bond yields, I guess, here. Right. The, the rise in long-end rates were tightening for them. And then how do you define the recent drop? I think either way, the 10-year yield is up about 75 to 85 basis points since the July rate hike. And mortgage rates are up similar. So at least in the housing market, the market has tightened three times since the July rate hike. And even when the Fed is done raising short-term interest rates, just by keeping them elevated for a while is a continuous form of tightening in addition to QT that continues on. We also, Julia, this morning have people looking ahead into next year and, and talking about when, not if, but when the first rate cut will come. Are they jumping the gun? No, I think that, you know, in our view, the Fed is done hiking. And so therefore, the next question is how high, how long do they need to keep rates in this restrictive territory? When will they be able to at least move rate, the nominal funds rate down with inflation? And that's a fair question. Our own forecast is that by the May FOMC meeting, we will have core PCE below 3% on year-on-year -year terms. And that will be enough progress for them to say, okay, we're now we're going to move in lockstep with the inflation trends to keep that real interest rate where it is, um, but provide a little bit of relief. 
And, and I think that that's, you know, not too distant in the not too distant future. It does assume or forecast more progress on uh, core inflation trends. Um, but I think if we look at the labor market, we are not, it is not generating inflation pressures. We're seeing a much healthier mix of price increases and price decreases. So I think the inflation emergency is over, even if there's still more progress the Fed needs to see to actually move the funds rate down. Do you think, Peter, that markets are jumping the gun? We had 6% rallies for the major averages last week, 8% for the Russell. Um, are we going to look back and say, yeah, obviously this was the start of some you know, face-ripping rally into year-end? Or is this uh, people hoping for a return of the past that, that can't return under these conditions? Well, what are markets trained to do? And once the Fed is perceived to be done and sort of to the side, well, let's rally markets. It's just that Pavlov's dog response. But as I said earlier, the Fed is still going to be tight, even if they cut. There's a far distance from the zero world we lived in versus even if they cut 150 basis points, takes the Fed funds rate to four. But they're still going to be shrinking their balance sheet. And it, well, we'll see what they're shrinking their balance sheet right. at the time. But it is still a form of tightening. And the tightening is global. QT is global. The rise in interest rates is global. So there is a continuous form of tightening globally as debt comes due at these much higher levels. Absolutely. And I think, Steve, that's where Olivier Blanchard and, and many have been making the point that, you know, markets might draw some relief in, in you know, the Fed funds rate going from five and a half to four, but four is still a big problem for, for instance, the U.S. government. Yeah. And, and, and I want to just go back, Kelly, because we've been talking about this for a few weeks now. Um, there is a difference between the near term concerns of the market on the debt and the longer term concerns. Um, really, it was August when the market decided the debt and the deficit was a problem. And that came from a one-two punch from Fitch, which downgraded the U.S. And the next day, the Treasury surprised the market with both the amount of issuance and the reliance on the long end. Well, a little time's gone by. The market's kind of got its brain around the size of the deficit and the issuance this year. Treasury backed off and put it on uh, a little bit more on the shorter end of the coupon curve than the longer end. And so that's the proximate reason, I think, for, for why yields have edged off right now or that particular panic's out of the market. But it doesn't remove anything about the longer-term concerns. When the market decides to get freaked out about that, I don't know. But Olivia Blanchard is saying what you're really looking for is a primary deficit, which is the deficit not counting interest payments, of around uh, uh, bringing that down to around zero. Otherwise, the deficit is growing. Exactly. And the U.S. is about 4%, 3.6%. And Blanchard estimates it could take up to 10 years. But the U.S. is so strong financially, Kelly, that I think what the market really wants to hear is from the Biden administration, from the Treasury Secretary, and then also from the Republican side, that there's some political commitment to bring this under control, of which there is absolutely none now. No, these are very hard decisions, Julia, to have to be making because they really come back to a lot of the fixed <clears throat> payments, uh, entitlements and that sort of thing that we're kind of stuck with. Julia, what, what would I mean, and if we head into a recession, that would just make things worse, obviously, because revenues will be under pressure. Is that in your base case for 2024, a recession? We don't have a, a recession as a base case. And then actually, when we are talking about Blanchard's analysis, you know, it's built on sort of projections of trend growth. And one of the upside surprises this year is that growth has outperformed what we consider that longer term trend. And the divergence comes from productivity. 
productivity has really improved in the last couple of quarters. And if we happen to be on a stronger productivity trend this cycle versus last cycle, then actually the math starts to add up a little bit better. Now, but two Julia, quarters don't make a trend. We've got to be cautious. Julia, but there's a number of reasons that you might think productivity outperforms the kind of low performance of last cycle, which gives us a little bit more breathing room in terms of the math that Blanchard is talking about. So I think that's the thing to keep an eye on. Does that outperformance of productivity continue? Right. Julia, I, I would yes. I was kind of down. I was down and chill with the idea that the deficit problem wasn't such a big deal because we were growing so strongly. The trouble is that the revenues haven't shown up. In fact, one of the big reasons why we're in the hole we're in is because revenues so dramatically disappointed. So my, my concern at this point, I don't know what the reason for that is. Maybe growth yeah. isn't that strong. That's a possibility. Maybe more and more people have decided that it's okay not to pay their taxes. That could be another reason. There was also a delay in California. But my concern, and I think a real reason for concern, is that we've had the growth but haven't had the tax revenues. Last word, Julia. Quickly. No, you're exactly right, Steve. That, and, it's, and it's important to highlight that, that the, the surprise and the deficit widening relative to CBO projections was indeed a shortfall in individual tax revenues, not even corporate tax right. revenues, which is unusual in a strong labor market. Let's say one possibility is that's just volatility. There's capital gains taxes that ebb and flow and can contribute to volatility. And so it doesn't repeat. So again, one of the positive surprises last week was that Treasury came out with a better deficit projection than people were expecting. Yeah. Uh, so it could be that that was just a one-off Q3 that doesn't repeat, and we go back to a better, you know, still wide deficit, but a better footing on revenues. Or it could be that, you know, they need to fix something in terms of the tax code so that the revenue collection is consistent with a strong economy. And therein lies the danger of underfunding the IRS. We know the research shows that uh, the IRS can pay for itself by making sure those tax collections are consistent yeah. with the performance of the economy. No, it's a great point. And, and again, these are all the subject already of much fighting, let alone what's to come in the months ahead, I suspect. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you, everybody, today. Julia Coronado, Peter Bookvar, and our own Steve Leisman. My next guest says right now it's all about the normalization of rates, the end of free money, the return to fundamentals. And in this environment, he's finding plenty of opportunities in both growth and value. Joining us now is veteran value investor Chris Davis, chairman and portfolio manager of Davis Advisors, a longtime Berkshire shareholder and board member. Chris, it's great to have you back. Thanks for your time. Welcome. Uh, Kelly, I'm always glad to be here. Can I just start with your reaction, you know, kind of top level to what's going on with bond yields? And it, there's so much more to, d to dive into. But how would you describe kind of financial markets at the moment? The system is very fragile. It's been grossly distorted and overextended over more than a decade, almost a decade and a half, in which basically money, the price of money was was distorted and manipulated and held artificially down in the face of an enormous amount of money being printed. And I think we're just, you know, in the early innings of this unwinding. And it means that everything is very taut. And I think it is a time when uh, the people that imagine somehow that we're going back to what we've lived through in the last decade are absolutely out of touch with reality. The, the system is pulled taut 
there's very little leeway in it. And you better be focused as an investor on characteristics like durability, resiliency. Uh, be prepared because strange things are going to have happened, started happening and are going to continue to happen. Oh, I like that. I was going to actually segue into some of your stock picks, which are not what, you know, people might have heard this warning before, but but be surprised at your holdings if they're not already familiar. You have big cap tech in here. You've got big financials. But before I, I dig into that, Chris, what do you mean by by more more problems could be happening? Like, what what do you sense as a veteran market watcher is kind of lurking out there? Well, you you think about what happens when money is free, right? No basic models of financial analysis work. You know, all of value investing is based on a discounted present value. If there's no discount rate, it doesn't work. Yeah, cap M, the price of capital, all of these distortions that were created in this idea where for the first time in 3,000 years, money was free for a period of time. So what happened when money began to be repriced? This is a return to normalcy. There's going to be a hangover from popping the biggest bubble that I think any of us will ever live through was the bubble of uh, of the fixed income markets. But it wasn't just in bonds. It wasn't just that, my God, you could lose 50% owning a 30-year government bond. That, that was just, it's still not in people's consciousness. I don't think people realize it. So then you saw the problems in the regional banks that had grossly mismanaged their balance sheets, mm-hmm. taking enormous interest rate risk. Well, now I think you saw it in some hedge uh, 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 pension funds in the UK. But when I look at things like private equity, I look at venture capital, I look at certain parts of commercial real estate, I look at private capital markets, there is an enormous amount of risk that still needs to be uh, repriced in light of the fact that capital, once again, the cost of capital needs to be factored in. It's fascinating and a good setup. We'll be speaking with a private credit guest a little bit later this hour. So let's talk about what what a company like Berkshire does in the middle of all this. They have $157 billion dollars of cash. Where do they put it to work? <laughs> well, first, I'm a director of Berkshire, so I, I can't make any comments about Berkshire's positioning. They, I think one of the things that every Berkshire shareholder and every other company should study is the quality of Berkshire's 10K. All of the information is in there that investors would want and that we would want if our seats were reversed. And so I really would recommend that. But I will say I've been a Berkshire shareholder for 30 or 40 years. And and what is the most powerful aspect of Berkshire that I think doesn't get appreciated when everything is sailing smooth, but what comes to get appreciated in times of dislocation and transition is that that, boy, that place is built to last. Durability, that notion that you are a fiduciary of your shareholders' equity, that is so deep in that place. And And certainly the recent results just indicate that culture in spades. And I don't think anybody doubts that or is ungrateful. But you, you know, at some point, even with whatever return they're making on that cash, you gotta deploy it. You gotta invest it. Do you think they're just kind? Of, uh, let, me, let me ask a different. So you don't have to comment about Berkshire. If you had 157 billion dollars in cash, Chris, would you wait for a, a market crash, so to speak, to pick up some companies at better valuations? Or is that the problem right now? Is that it's still a valuation issue, or are they they just too big? Well, of course. 
given your name, you'll appreciate the importance of things like the Kelly criteria, right? <laughs> so, you know, a big part of investing, especially when people are uh, fail to price risk appropriately, is making sure that you are always there to participate uh, in future rounds, that you're in the game to last, that you don't get driven out of the table. So you have to size bets right. And so, you know, numbers uh, at places like Berkshire grow, but so does market cap. And so, you know, you can't look at one in the absence of the other. I remember when Microsoft used to have, you know, 30 billion of cash and people said, oh, that was crazy. That was way too much. But, you know, optionality has huge value. And the fact that any company that has been a good steward of that savings and a good investor, the idea of having that optionality as we go through a time of enormous transition in the economy, in the markets, in geopolitics, yeah. in globalization, the value of that optionality is so much higher and should be valued higher. So I think, you know, in a sense, any really thoughtful, long-term intelligent investor, you know, having some pow dry powder, uh, I think is in incredibly important because strange things are going to happen. Well, that's a perfect place to leave it. Chris, thank you so much for joining us today. It's really good to see you. Kelly, I'm always glad to be here. Thank you so much. And I learned about the Kelly Criterion, which I did not previously know about. Chris Davis with <laughs> Davis Advisors. Coming up, as bond yields have dropped, so have mortgage rates. Up next, we'll put the plunge into perspective and look at what it could mean for the home builders who have had to buy down mortgages to incentivize buyers. Plus, as borrowing costs stay high, more companies are looking to break into the world of direct lending. We'll talk to Morgan Stanley's head of global private credit and equity about that and the biggest risks and opportunities he sees in the space. As we head to break, here's a quick look at markets, which are red across the board, although slightly. Dow was up 106 at the session highs. We're down 49 right now. NASDAQ down a third of a percent, but coming off a hot win streak. It's best since January. And the 10-year note, just under 465. We're back after this. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. give it to you. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Let's go, give it to you. Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Welcome back to The Exchange. Mortgage rates have dropped sharply since last Wednesday when the Fed kept rates steady, but they're still, look at that, nearly 7.4%. Diana Olick has a closer look here at just how much relief we're getting, Diana. Yeah, Kelly, we were in definite free fall last week, but moved back up a little bit again today. But the 30-year fix started on Monday of last week at 7.92% and took three major plunges starting Wednesday with the Fed pause and ending Friday with the lower-than-expected jobs report. It totaled more than half of a percentage point drop in just one week, and that very rarely happens. 
So, of course, the builder stocks loved that. You can see the home construction ETF shot up. But to put it in housing perspective, if you're buying a $400,000 home with 20% down on a 30-year fixed mortgage, your monthly payment was $119 lower at the end of last week than it was on the previous Monday. So what does that mean for the fall housing market? Well, it could help on the edges, but we've still got sky-high home prices. And the last time affordability was this bad was in the 1980s when rates were actually in double digits and the average home cost about three and a half times the median income. But today, the average home costs six times the median income. And home prices just continue to rise. So again, Kelly, mortgage rates over here, home prices over here. It's still not a great time to buy. Yeah, apparently, according to Black Knight, we either need incomes to spike by 60 percent, home prices to fall 40 percent, <laughs> or mortgage rates to fall four and a half points to bring us back to pre-pandemic levels of affordability. Right. So we need a perfect storm. Yeah. Even if it were one of those three, but any one of those three seems uh, pretty unlikely. I don't know right. which one. I would say if I had to place my bets, I'll place my bets on, geez, I don't know where I'd go. Maybe mortgage rates. Um, I don't know about that. I would look at home prices, though. The thing is, they have been going up pretty dramatically still, even now. But we're starting to hear more people lowering their prices because of the higher rates. So that's one to watch, especially in the winter when things get slower, if prices do start to pull back a little bit and open the door. All right, Diana, thank you very much. Our Diana Olick. Now, as recession risks also run higher, my next guest sees opportunity ahead for the home builders, which he says historically outperform amid economic headwinds. Joining us now is Ken Zener, senior analyst at Seaport, Seaport Research Partners. Uh, you've got to buy on all the home builders, as I think you've had for some time. Ken, welcome back. Thank you. We actually just upgraded five of our 10 builders um, on Thursday. Wow. And our counterintuitive, yeah, it was a big deal for us. Uh, we do move ratings around. Uh, our counterintuitive upgrade looks at housing sector returns versus the market being positive 75% of the time over the last 10 de-inversion cycles, that is the two versus 10 year, uh, with builders outperforming 29 and 46% versus the market on a six and 12 month basis. So that's interesting because we all know usually when the yield curve is uninverting, that is a bad thing. It means recession's coming. There've been a couple times when it hasn't, but we had economic conditions that were a little different. Maybe we didn't have tightness in the senior loan officer survey, for instance, we have that tightness now. So it seems like we're going to follow the path where the recession comes next, which in that case, I can't imagine, you know, at some point, even if you buy the builders on the uninversion trade, when do you sell them? Well, um, the de-inversion, which, you know, it's come in probably the 30 bits from what had been 100 basis points spread. The numbers I gave you indicate that the outperformance can persist 6, 12 months. So wow. I don't think we're there yet. But we don't know the direction of rates. Nobody does. But we do point out the de-inversion. It has led to recession nine out of the last 10 times. Uh, along with housing activity bottoming about, ironically, about two months after. There's some counterintuitive things here. But as Chris was talking about uh, in the segment before, rates um, have moved off lows. We don't expect it to be there. Uh, and we do look at history because the 50s, 60s, and 70s, we think, hold a lot of information relative to how the stocks perform. Namely, the rise in interest rates that we saw post the 1966 monetary tightness led to a secular tightness of existing inventory. And those were the really important because that led to housing bottom earlier versus the 1989 
or 2007 period when we had a lot of excess housing units on the existing side. That's interesting. And we also know, even to your point, even if we had a downturn, that housing is typically one of the very early cyclical areas where you see that recovery, usually helped by lower interest rates and that sort of thing. So maybe some people are, are already kind of anticipating that. And the people I know who are very bullish, kind of the value investors set on housing, Bill Smead and Charlie Babrinskoy, they seem to be looking at kind of the demographic argument here as well and, and sim the simple economics of supply and demand. Right. I'm not a huge demographer in the sense that stocks are very volatile uh, and I prefer to capture the 80 percent that is tied to the stock volatility. However, um, from a value perspective, the five stocks we upgraded are trading at about book value versus a more complex pitch on better run, less levered companies. So this is very much a risk adjusted call versus the market using, you know, a lot of historical data to guide us because we think people are pretty much similar in terms of how they invest now versus the past. And quick final word, how much upside could you potentially see over the next 12 months if history repeats? Right. So our price targets are 25% upside. We'll incre go incrementally, but basically versus the market, it's 29 and 46% hmm. over the cycle that we look back uh, during the inversion. So material outperformance, despite you know the strength that they've had since last September. All right, Ken, thanks for joining us today. We appreciate it. Thank you. Ken Zener with Seaport. Coming up, Uber reporting tomorrow morning with the shares on track for a seven-day win streak. We've got the numbers and the narratives to know as they also close in on a 52-week high if they can get back in the green today. We're back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Welcome back to the exchange of stocks have just dipped negative uh, after giving up a gain of about 106 points on the Dow. Let's get to Tyler Matheson for a CNBC News update. Tyler. All right. Thank you very much, Kelly. U.S. bases in Iraq and Syria have been attacked at least 10 times since Thursday. Defense officials said there have been 38 attempted attacks on U.S. targets in Iraq and Syria since October 17. Officials added that most of the attacks have come via drones and rockets, but none have resulted in new U.S. casualties or damage to infrastructure. Donald Trump is testifying in his civil fraud trial today. On the stand, the former president said that the judge had ruled against him before knowing anything about the company, calling him a fraud for making comments on the value of Trump's properties. That is, the judge is a fraud. Trump testified that he is worth billions of dollars more than what the attorney general has stated and called her a political hack. President Biden is in Delaware this afternoon to announce a new $16 billion federal investment in passenger rail projects, uh, famously known for riding Amtrak. The White House says the funding will go toward improving the train's speed, cutting delays, creating union jobs. Amtrak will get about $66 billion in new investments coming from the $1 trillion bipartisan infrastructure law. Kelly, back to you. Tyler, thank you. I'll see you soon. Coming up, high risk, high reward. 
Maybe. Quite a lot more companies are piling into private credit at a time when the threat of defaults is climbing. We'll ask the head of Morgan Stanley's credit business about those risks next here on The Exchange. Welcome back. Rising yields on corporate debt and the freeze up in bank lending since March have led to a surge in private credit. Prequin reporting the market sits at more than a trillion and a half dollars, bigger than a high yield debt, I've heard, could grow by another $700 billion over the next four years as well. But with booming business also comes bigger risks. S&P ran an analysis to gauge borrower resiliency and found that at the current base rate of five and a half percent, less than half of the 2000 businesses surveyed would generate positive cash flow if their earnings dropped by as little as 10 percent. They also identified most vulnerable sectors as technology, software and services. But my next guest says software is where he's seeing opportunities. Joining me now for more is David N. Miller. He's head of global private credit and equity at Morgan Stanley. Welcome to you. A, you. a big job, a much bigger job even than I'm sure when you began seven years ago. Are you surprised at the growth of this industry or do, do, would you have said, yeah, this makes sense? Yeah, I think it makes sense. It's been a long-term trend. If you look back really 15 years, particularly following uh, the GFC, uh, banks have withdrawn uh, levered lending. So private credit has been been growing alongside that um, and filling the void. You've also seen the rise in private equity substantially over the last decade. And a lot of private credit supports the private uh, equity. Exactly. Industry. They kind of are flip sides. The private equity has gone from maybe two trillion to four or four and a half trillion or something like that. Um, but critics are now saying this entire business model is predicated on cheap debt and we don't have that anymore. And at least year to date, a lot of people benefited from the rise in, in those leveraged loan floating rate that you mentioned, but you wonder if you look into next year, if there's going to be a lot more pressure on companies, portfolio companies, and a lot more defaults and problems like that. Yeah, it's a good question. I would separate sort of what we're seeing over the course of this year, what I'll call current loans. And actually, we see great opportunity there. If you think about the rise in base rates, that's giving first lien secured loans 11 to 12% yields. You're also seeing in these new deals equity contributions coming in of 50, 60 percent. So a lot of downside protection supporting it. You also see uh, some of the higher quality businesses are what uh, are coming to market, uh, certainly over the past year. So we feel very comfortable with the quality of loans that uh, are being issued, particularly you, this year. Do you think that there's an over-concentration in uh, software as a service types of stocks? Or you know, if that concentration exists, is it primarily a good thing because those are supposed to be more resilient business models? Or could it be a risk if all of a sudden they all have to grow market share in order to be profitable? And you know, look what's happening with the IPO window. That's kind of shut. Um, maybe you can sell to other private equity, private credit players, but it's, a, it's hard to get multiple expansion, which has supported a lot of the returns that we've seen over the past decade when we're in this kind of environment. So, you know, does, does that sector in particular help or hurt that cause, do you think? Yeah, I mean, we run a very diversified portfolio across businesses and sectors. We do like software. We have for a while uh, and for a few reasons. First, we look for companies that are robust, uh, that have hundreds of millions of revenue. That revenue is very recurring, tends to be long-term contracts with highly diversified customer bases, and it's usually mission critical. It's very hard to rip out. Uh, so that's one reason. The second reason is uh, we like to uh, lend money to sponsors in the, the software space that have deep uh, degrees of experience, uh, that also have levers to manage cash flow. If there is a downturn, they can actually cut off some spending, cut off some growth, wow. and generate cash flow. Interesting. So how are you planning for, you know, the range of outcomes could include that rates stay high or that we go into a recession or maybe both. Um, what are some of the, the kind of uh, return analyses you're running under these different kinds of scenarios? 
Well, we always look at downside protection. Again, the new deals, I think, are very robust in how they have that downside equity uh, backing it. But if you look back to some of the more uh, older vintage deals, uh, certainly they were underwritten when people didn't expect rates to rise as much. And I think that's an area where you will see some pressure going forward if rates stay elevated. I, I also look at it as an opportunity. Um, there, there, there's increasing demand for what I'll call junior capital or, or credit opportunities that really try and help companies fill that void. And sometimes that's in the form of, of preferred equity or junior debt that offers a payment in kind option, which allows companies uh, really some relief on their cash interest to boost, boost their cash flow. So I guess if push came to shove, do you think private credit could bail out private credit? <laughs> no. In other words, if there were companies that didn't have the funding or had to kind of make fire sales of different uh, portfolio assets that that other players in the private credit space who felt better capitalized could come in and and aid them, right? Because no one expects that there's going to be a TARP or something for this kind of industry. Yeah, I think it's going to be bilateral, very rational. For good companies that are a little stretched on their balance sheet, there will be solutions offered by private credit uh, players uh, that have that mandate, and that will allow them to grow into uh, the balance sheet and really play for the future. Now, there will be companies that are really underperforming that also have bad balance sheets, and I think that's where you're going to see defaults Rate, rates rise, and that's where there'll, there'll be some, some issues. But we think it's relatively small part uh, of the universe and tends to cluster around sectors that are highly cyclical, have no pricing power, and are very capital intensive. So they're chewing up uh, cash. Overall, do you think investors can still expect double digit returns or something of that nature in the next couple of years in this space? We do. I think it'll be somewhat dependent on rates. Uh, right now, they seem to have flattened out, which we think is quite a, a, a positive sign. Um, but it also will uh, be dependent upon the trajectory of the economy. But even if default rates spike and go back from very low levels to more normalized levels, these 11, 12 percent rates in portfolios will be able to absorb uh, several hundred basis points of credit losses. All right. David Miller, thanks for coming in today. We thanks, really Kevin. appreciate your time joining me from Morgan Stanley. Coming up, shares of Uber have nearly doubled this year and they report before the bell tomorrow. We have some key factors to watch next as the stock goes back into positive territory by a quarter point today. Stay with us. Welcome back ahead of Uber's results before the bell tomorrow. New data shows a standard ride for competitor Lyft is 4% cheaper as it slashes prices to gain market share. Deirdre Bosa is here now for today's tech check, and that could peel off some users, Deirdre, cause a little bit of a price war. Yes, and it also ties into profitability because ever since Uber went public, the story has been around that profitability. First, on an adjusted EBITDA front and then gap net income. So Uber has made strides on both of those fronts. They beat and adjusted and raised adjusted earnings over the last few quarters. So investors will want to see them again. In terms of net income, we talked about this last quarter. A lot of that has relied on Ian on unrealized gains on equity stakes and other companies that Uber is in. So they're going to need to show sustainable profits. And remember that there's a new CEO. So it also raises some questions about capital return plans. Are they going to start returning a little more to investors? Now, what, and this is what you referred to, Kelly, what could also affect profitability is the new a new price war that we may be seeing in ride sharing. Uh, Lyft's new CEO, David Risher, when he came in, he really tried to be more aggressive on that front. And some third party data from Yipit that you're looking at right now really shows that as well. And 
according to that profitability, Kelly, that could determine S&P inclusion, which some are expecting on the street. It could happen as early as this year. Last thing I will say, though, this is a stock that's trading at $47 and change. It has nearly doubled this year. and still just a few bucks above where it IPO'd back in 2019. Do you think Uber could just shrug off the pricing challenge from Lyft? Well, they do have the Uber Eats business, right, which has been making uh, more and more of that profitability and revenue. So it might be easier for them to shrug off than it has been in the past. Um, so, yeah, I think potentially it could. But again, you know, ride sharing when the economy is doing better, that's when people are taking more of that. And it's always been the sort of tip for tat with Lyft. And Lyft isn't going away, at least with David Risher yet. So it could provide some um, some stress a little bit, maybe. Sure. What about on the regulatory front? So the regulatory front is interesting because they had this sort of battle in New York City um, where, you know, ride sharing drivers were trying to get, you know, a minimum wage. And there's always this question overhanging Uber and Lyft of how are they going to classify the drivers? Because if they were not classified as independent contractors, the whole business model essentially falls apart. So on that front, we got a settlement on Friday. That's good news for Uber and Lyft basically because it does not classify those drivers as independent contractors, even though they're going to have to pay, what, some more than $300 million to settle it. The bottom line is that they get to keep their status, and that's a, that's a good thing for Uber and Lyft. You can see the stocks perking up on that as well. Deirdre, thank you for now. We appreciate it. Deirdre Bosa will hear from Uber tomorrow morning. Still ahead, we'll get to three more names reporting results. NXP Semi, which has topped earnings and revenue 19 of the past 20 quarters, but it's been a tougher trend for semis lately. Air Products could see accelerated earnings growth ahead, according to Wells Fargo, and retail makes up nearly 83% of Realty Income's portfolio. We'll get you the action, the story, and the trade on all three next in Earnings Exchange. Welcome back. More earnings are ahead this week. So we've got the trades on NXP Semi Air Products and Realty Income for today's edition of Earnings Exchange. Joining us for that is Marianne Montaigne, Gradient Investments Portfolio Management Consultant. Marianne, it's great to have you here. And let's dive right into Thanks, it. Thanks, Kelly. Of course, NXP Semi has actually been on a good streak in terms of results, but it's been a tough stretch for the stock lately as concerns persist about the sector. It's up 14% this year from that AI tide that has raised all the chips. Uh, but the past three months, yeah. it's a little bit different story. Stiefel is focused on what's going on with the automotive space, mobile demand. They say near-term margins may have peaked as semi-slow more broadly. Would you be a buyer here? Uh, you know, we wouldn't. Um, we think it's still too early because uh, the uh, return to growth in China just has been very um, uh, disappointing. It really hasn't accelerated like we thought it would. The auto production, of course, is boggled by that six-week strike across the auto industry. And we think that the outlook is perhaps a little dour for auto production quarters. So the only positive is that AI. And um, we just think that management's going to talk about those headwinds and we would not be a buyer. Are you bullish or, or I, I don't know how, maybe how you describe it, if you have a take on uh, the semiconductor space more broadly here, you know, it's been kind of a, a rising tide, like we mentioned, but now we're seeing some more headwinds, some more differentiation, a lot of talk about when we're really going to get back to kind of normal here. Yeah, I think it's pretty broad-based, all these uh, headwinds. I, I think it's completely across the semiconductor area. 
All right, so NXP, just one of the names you might be a little cautious on. There's the SMH, still up 46% year-to-date. Let's turn to a different uh, category entirely, which is air products. Uh, the shares of that industrial gas and chemicals company are actually down about 5% this year. Wells Fargo optimistic about this $17 billion mega project backlog uh, for hydrogen clean energy conversions, but they're still concerned about increased capital spending, rates, volatile energy prices. Well, what, what would you do with a stock like this, Marianne? Well, this is part of a duopoly, and we love finding companies that are in a duopoly with just one major competitor. Um, and here we think that um, uh, the growth in the company is not fully priced into the stock. So we think there's mid-single I'm sorry, mid-double-digit earnings growth ahead, and our target price matches up with that. But you add in a 2.4% yield, and you're over 15%. I'll take that uh, on a duopoly any day. <laughs> Any chance that that duopoly gets disrupted regulatorily or otherwise? I haven't heard anything of substance, no. Yeah, no, I agree. I think this one's a, a little esoteric uh, for those kinds of discussions. Let's uh, turn then to right. the income space, REITs and so forth. Realty income rate is down 20% year to date, uh, but starting November pretty strong after announcing its acquisition of Spirit Realty. Mizuho bullish on the deal's boost to funds from operations, but concerns about rising rates and tenant credit persist. Uh, yeah, this is a tricky one. Ticker O, Marianne, how would you play this one? Well, we used to like this because it was historically very um, uh, stable type of operation. They worked with a lot of grocery stores and convenience stores. You get, don't get anything more stable than that. But they are in the retail space, and that's a problem right now. And uh, that's why it's underperformed both the sector and um, uh, the market overall this year. Uh, that acquisition of Spirit Realty was really not well received, even though they are talking about uh, being accretive to earnings near term. Um, it just has a slower growth kind of business. And uh, we prefer in the retail space, American Towers and also extra space storage. Interesting. Okay, I was going to add, by the way, Realty Income CEO Sumit Roy will be on Power Lunch Wednesday for an exclusive interview after those results. We're looking forward to that. Um, because rates have now dropped, Mariana, especially in the past week or so, does that make you take a second look across the REIT space, some of those more rate-sensitive parts of the market, or do you stick with kind of the fundamental uh, headwinds that you see? Well, we do like uh, the more interest rate sensitive uh, sectors with a, not, not necessarily a big drop in interest rates, but the, what we view as the cessation of rate increases out of the Fed. Um, so, yeah, uh, the uh, REIT sector is more interesting to us, uh, some utilities. But again, we're stock pickers, so we don't do broad brush on any sector. Yeah, and that makes sense. If I had to ask you off the cuff, what are your top couple of stock picks right now, maybe into year end or for the next kind of few months here as we navigate both the rate environment and the recession risks people are worried about? Well, we like some of the pharma companies. You know, they're, they're more like uh, consumer staples, which I see are both uh, leading today. Uh, but we think there's a lot of cash out there. They can be uh, acquirers of some, you know, good um, uh, stage three or phase three kind of uh, uh, biotech names. They can buy back shares. Um, you know, Bristol-Myers is one of our favorites there. All right. And a lot of people looking more closely at that space lately. Marianne, thanks so much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thank you, Kelly. Marianne Montaigne with Gradient Investments. That does it for us here on The Exchange. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, 
same place. Did you hear that? That's what an estimated 500 horsepower sounds like. How about that? That's a premium banging Olufsen sound system with 18 speakers and a Biosonic sound experience. And that, that's our legacy. You ready to be a part of it? Unlock the energy of the all-electric ZDX Type S. Order now at Acura.com.